Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Karin, for a very nice introduction and for this invitation. And uh, well, thank you very much, everybody, for coming. So um, I hope uh, you will enjoy the talk. So yeah, so um, today what I'm going to present this uh, material from a, a book chapter that hopefully will be published uh, next year. And this is a chapter commissioned uh, by a Mexican think tank which is uh, full of uh, a couple of friends of mine, so there's a lot of uh, social capital working there. And, uh, you know, crony, you know, like crony capitalism, crony academicism. So, um, <coughs> so yeah, so they asked me to, uh, to prepare this paper, which in turn is also based uh, on a talk I gave for them at LSC. In, uh, they, they have every year this Mexico Week. So they were in, in charge of organizing Mexico Week at LSC. Um, two years ago, so they commissioned this thing. And it's also based, I should say, on the undergraduate dissertation of my former student, Thomas Staley, very, very nice guy, who hopefully will be back in academia soon. He owns an internet company or something. Huh? <laughs> and, um, and of course, so we, we, we used uh, his undergraduate dissertation, I was a supervisor, and we built on it, we added more things and made it a bit uh, richer. Um, what, it, what it is about uh, in a nutshell, essentially it's a cross-country comparison of, um, of a measure of uh, intergenerational uh, income uh, mobility, essentially a, a correlation between the father's income and son's income across countries. So we, we, we do estimates of that and then we compare them against uh, some measures of uh, inequality of income and also uh, measures of uh, inequality of opportunity of children, and I will explain later what, what that means, what's the definition in particular. Uh, and the idea is a bit just to, to, to try to recreate, uh, I don't know if you guys have been in touch with this literature, what uh, Alan Kruger, uh, the f uh, former uh, advisor of uh, President Obama, called the Great Gatsby Curve. That there should be a T there, I just realized the typo on the title, sorry for that. Um, which essentially, tries to see whether uh, income inequality or, or, or another, be another well-being indicator, but like inequality measures across countries correlate with uh, social mobility measures. In other words, trying to see whether it is the case or not that uh, countries with higher, say, income inequality are also countries in which there is more uh, intergenerational transmission, if you want, of well-being outcomes, whether children reproduce more, are more likely to reproduce their parental uh, um, well-being outcomes or not, whether there's a correlation between that and income inequality. And in a, in a minute I'll mention part of the motivation in doing that comparison to begin with. So, essentially, <coughs> as I said, summary, we revisit and update a short paper by Andrews and Lay that came out a few years ago <coughs> with more recent and broader data. So we build on the data set they had, but we have more countries and, uh, and recent uh, data on social mobility than they had. And as I mentioned, this is cross-country uh, description uh, of father-to-son income mobility. And here there's a very important methodological caveat, um, which is this, this line here. This is the handle with curve, the disclaimer, the, the asterisk, small print, predicted paternal income. Because we actually don't have the father's income. But, um, you know, economists always like to think about second best, you know, and whether we can still salvage this research despite not having <laughs> the main thing. So what we do here, following Andrew's leg, is 
with measures of occupation and, and age, we, we, since we, we have the, the children's income, the adult children's income, and we can correlate them to some characteristics of these uh, children, and we have those characteristics for the fathers, then we perform a prediction. We mainly use occupational categories for that age. I'll show you in a sec. But this is, this is where we add a bit uh, to the literature a little bit too much. Um, I mean, going beyond just simply updating or replicating the Anderson Lake paper. We also ask whether these intergenerational income correlations mainly owe to what we call rigidities at the bottom or rigidities at the top. And by those terms, what we mean is whether the observed correlations can be associated with perhaps more intergenerational transmission of outcomes among uh, uh, low outcomes, like low incomes, or whether actually the total correlation that we see is more driven perhaps by what we call rigidity at the top, in other words, uh, higher transmission among the wealthy. You see? So we, we, add, uh, we, we, add, we add some uh, tentative evidence, no, not conclusive, but tentative evidence based uh, with some estimations of mobility matrices that I will show as well. And then we do the great Gatsby curves. Now the traditional great Gatsby curve usually plots, it has a scatter plot, you have an income inequality measure, say, and an intergenerational correlation measure which proxies social mobility. But what we do also, which is an addition here as well, a contribution, a minor one, is we do not plot, but we also plot social mobility measure, uh, the intergenerational income correlation measure, against inequality of opportunity of children. Uh, measure, measures of inequality of opportunity of children. We use four measures, and I'll describe them in a few minutes. Um, but if you want me to spoil the movie, we do find that societies with higher uh, transmission between father and son of income higher reproduction, are also societies with higher inequality opportunity for children. Of equality opportunity in um, access to, we do access to sanitation, we do uh, overcrowding of the house, and we do two, uh, uh, two te uh, the, the PISA test results, the education test results for literacy and uh, numeracy. Yeah? So, uh, <coughs> so in a sense, these inequalities and these transmissions are, are uh, on average, seem to be compounded. But of course there are exceptions, and we'll see some interesting exceptions as well. We'll mention them in passing. And well, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, you can already, you, you already know a lot of potential motivations for doing this descriptive analysis. Uh, I'll just mention a few, but you, can, you probably have plenty more. Um, there's certainly a concern for inequality that, that has arisen again, perhaps after the world financial crisis, or perhaps related to longer-term phenomena. There's a lot of bestseller books. I mean, I'm just mentioning the ones I know, but there are many more. I mean, some of those authors you know, uh, some of them are economists. There's also Robert Putnam, his book on the US, right? Came uh, last year. Also pertaining to inequality and mobility. Um, also, if, you, if you've ever had the opportunity to look at data, uh, cross-country data, between country inequalities, like in, let's say in GDP per capita, are decreasing, especially because of China and India uh, growing. And in the last 15 years also, Latin America and Southern Africa driven by China started to grow faster than the developed world. But within country inequalities are increasing. 
for the last 30 years. And it's all this literature that you know and probably have contributed to or know people who have contributed to, the dismantling of the welfare state and all these uh, things going on, in the, especially in the developed world, right? But of course, I mean, there, there are more nuances emerging in this literature, which I think is very fruitful, very positive. Um, for example, um, the debates on inequality of opportunity, which I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, you can go back to the Greeks, you know, more than two thousand years ago, they were discussing this stuff. But recently, the last twenty years, there's been a lot of good theoretical and empirical research on looking at trying to. Uh, to unpack inequality in outcomes, let's say income inequality, health inequality, education inequality, and looking at the drivers behind that inequality and making ethical judgments about it, which in turn ideally should or should not be related to policies or what to do with it. And essentially, what the inequality of opportunity literature in, in uh, ethics and political philosophy and also in social science, <coughs> what they're trying to do is to say that in principle, outcome inequality could be divided into inequality of opportunity, inequality of efforts. And according to at least the so-called uh, uh, libertarian, sorry, liberal egalitarian school, uh, inequality of efforts, if, if these efforts can be attributed to people's uh, autonomous action and so forth, should be respected, whereas inequalities of opportunity, which are defined as Inequalities due to circumstances beyond people's control, therefore cannot be held responsible for, those inequalities should be compensated for. So that's part of the debate. Of course, it's a more complicated debate because effort and opportunity are not that easy to disentangle, and there's a lot of nuances and complications that, that this literature is certainly aware of, and there's still a lot of work being done in this area. Also, there's a no concern regarding the link between social mobility and equality of outcomes in general. And here the idea is, um, and there are a few authors, uh, in, including, I mean, there's some old book by Milton Friedman, the, the economist, uh, where the idea was that inequality in, in incomes, for example, or in outcomes of all kinds, could be perhaps more tolerable if the same society had more social mobility. So you, if it was not so much dictated by your parents' background, but you know, I mean, you, you may still say legitimately it's not tolerable even if there's high mobility, but the point is that this was um, an extra motivation for doing this type of graphs and things like that. It's, it's a normal one. It comes from many decades ago. But also, with the inequality opportunity, we can make also a statement saying basically that in social mobility, we should look at parents' outcomes or connecting to children's outcomes. Parents' outcomes are circumstances beyond children's control. Therefore, from an inequality opportunity point of view, parental background should not affect uh, well-being's outcome. In other words, inequality opportunity literature would advocate uh, very high social mobility from an ethical point of view. But there are nuances in this literature, by the way. There are nuances. Uh, we could talk about it later if you want, but it's not, it's not the main... Uh, part of the paper, I'm just talking about motivation. So, just to summarize the type of questions we're, we're dealing with here in this paper, again, at a very descriptive level, huh? very, very on the, we're just touching the surface, really. First question, is it the case that more unequal societies are perhaps compensated by higher levels of social mobility, or not? 
how do measures of inequality and social mobility relate to broader measures of inequality opportunity? And here's where I'm talking about the Great Gatsby Curve in 3D. Because the first question is the 2D, right? Inequality of outcomes versus social mobility. Here we're saying inequality of outcomes, social mobility, and inequality of opportunity, children. Well, what's existing evidence? As perhaps you know, on average, more unequal societies tend to be more immobile, more reproduction. There's a paper that we replicated here, but there's also Miles Korak, who has a, a very famous in the US working on this. And there's a part of Honori with Shiko um, Ferreira and Vito uh, Paragini and other co-authors who have also a similar paper looking at this evidence. And the standard plot of, that, of, of this relationship is the famous great paper that I mentioned that was uh, um, christened that way by Alan Kruger in a speech a few years ago while he was working in the Obama administration, if I remember well. So what are our main findings? And then, of course, after that, I'll show you part of the sausage, how we, how we cook the sausage, so all the nasty stuff will appear there as well. Um, uh, you know. So first, we corroborate the findings of Andrews and Lake. We do find a positive relationship between Gini inequality of income, so income inequality measured with the Gini index. Of course, we could have also used other indices, but that will have an entry in the thing. In 1985, that measure connects, or positively, to intergenerational <coughs> reconciliation. Uh, uh, recently, uh, I forgot the, the, the date of our data set, but it will appear in a slide in, in a minute. But only statistically and practically significant, practically significant, like it's really a positive correlation, a very clear positive correlation, only when we exclude former Varsopak countries. And this is a type of exception that, that I was talking about. Um, what characterizes uh, former Varsopak countries? They tend to have low income inequality, comparatively to the rest of the world, obviously, but very um, very high uh, intergenerational correlation. In other words, very low social mobility. Whereas the rest of the world, the correlation, if you, if you throw in Western Europe, uh, the Americas, Africa, Asia, and so forth, <coughs> what you see is that, is that on average, um, the kids, or the young people, the people who were young in 1985, who were nurtured in societies with high income inequalities, that's why 85, today they are more likely to reproduce their parents' uh, outcome than the kids who in 1985 were in more equal societies. Yeah, that uh, makes a kind of sense, right? But this is the other thing we find, and here this is where we're trying to, to poke at the literature and say, dig deeper. We find that countries with similar levels of intergenerational mobility differ in the relative importance of these two rigidities I mentioned. Rigidities at the bottom versus rigidities at the top. And here we're here where we provide a very tentative, incomplete, but still uh, um, um, uh, provoking, if we want, like trying to, to, to stir up uh, interest. We provide a, a typ typology of taxonomy. So very, very bare bones, uh, raw, Typology, but it's an attempt to say, look, uh, 
just just because you have a certain level of intergenerational mobility, it doesn't necessarily mean that that it's mobility among the wealthy or among the it varies. There are different cases, and we also find again it's also this technology that societies where the adult sons are more likely to reproduce the parental situation are also societies where the children, so the next generation, the children, face more inequality of opportunity. So we're in a sense trying to link past, you know, in, in gene income 35, present, the social mobility indicator, and future, the, the foreign equality of opportunity indices. So in a sense, what, what, what this paper tries to show, again, with, with just tentative evidence, not completely conclusive, but provoking stuff, saying that there's potential for broad reproduction of inequality across the world. Okay, so, but again, trying to be careful that this is all tentative evidence. Huh? Uh, more work needs to be done, uh, more replications, uh, trying different methods, trying different indicators, right, to, to have robust findings. But this is just the beginning. So I'll mention quickly a bit, we'll talk about the methodology, data estimation choices, and obviously the findings. So there's going to be graphs and things like that, which is what we all want to see. And there's some concluding remarks, some of which I already anticipated. So, so far so good, yeah? So far? Good, good, good. So uh, how did we measure intergenerational mobility, which is our measure of social mobility? We computed so-called intergenerational income elasticity and intergenerational correlation. They're two related. What is the two are related? What's the intergenerational uh, income elasticity? Essentially, we run a regression, a linear regression, where uh, the dependent variable is uh, the income of the son, of the adult son, and, and, and one of the uh, explanatory variables is the predicted income of the father. Okay. We are focusing uh, on, on, on father and son, but as we say in the conclusions, of course uh, it is of, of the utmost interest to, to do mother-daughter, mother-son, father-daughter, and all combinations you want, obviously. But we, start, we have to start with something and, and try to not, uh, homogenize the, the sample a bit, because otherwise there may be gender issues involved and all sorts of other issues involved that would uh, complicate uh, uh, estimation and interpretation. So, so the, so the intergenerational income elasticity is the coefficient in that linear regression, the coefficient accompanying the parental variable. Yeah. And then the inter, um, I like this. Then the intergenerational, somebody patronizing, but please don't, it's just not because I like you. <laughs> the intergenerational, um, Correlation is just the intergenerational uh, elasticity multiplied by, by this ratio of the standard deviation of father's income divided by standard deviation of son's income. So we do that in order to have a correlation coefficient between ranging between minus one and one. Just a run-of-the-mill correlation coefficient. That's why we do that. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, we're going to work with a correlation because of this interpretation, minus one and one. And what's the interpretation? Essentially, it's a measure of, of the degree of intergenerational uh, re-ranking. So the, the closer to one, it means that there's no re-rankings, uh, or very few. It means that uh, if your father was uh, on the top 1%, you are very likely or to be one per top 1%. 
and all the way like that, like ranked all the way to the bottom. That's what it means when it's the, when the value is very close to one. Actually, if it's one, it means that the household ranking of the fathers gets exactly reproduced among the kids, if it's a one. And the minus one is that it's a flip, it's a complete flip about. You know, like the, 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 the son of the poorest father becomes the wealthiest person. That's a minus one, okay? And a zero, and a zero means that, well, it's hard to describe the zero, but it's, there's a lot of reshuffling on the zero, yeah? And the farther away from one, the farther down from one, the more reshuffling there is. In effect, in, in a zero, it's actually, the, something and value close to the zero means that it's almost impossible to predict the son's income ranking based on the parent's income ranking. That's the difference between the zero and the minus one, because in the minus one, you can't predict. You can say, oh, the, the farther down you were, the farther up you will be. There's prediction. So zero, pivoting around zero means that the level of mobility is very high in the sense that you cannot predict the outcome of the kid based on the parental yeah? Okay, we we'll talk about that. Okay, and then, of course, in the main bit, there is a prediction, quote-unquote prediction, of parental income, because we don't have the father's income in the data set. So this is where... Um, uh, remember this phrase? It, it was an Amer a U.S. politician from the 19th century, but it's attributed wrongly to Bismarck. That says uh, lawmaking is like sausages. You don't want to know how they were made, <laughs> right? Like <coughs> same here. You will. <laughs> okay. So, but like, again, I mean, these second best estimations are standard in the literature, so if you, if you are going to throw tomatoes at me, that's fine, but throw tomatoes at the whole literature as well, okay? <laughs> so uh, we follow actually Anderson Lake and construct a measure of parental income using common indicators of occupation. So here's, uh, I'll show you how, how it works. So this is the first step. So see what we do. This, this is the income of son I. And we run a very simple linear regression where here ai is the age of son i, and here it's squared. Delta and lambda are just coefficients that need to be estimated. And here, here's where the action happened. We have eight occupational dummies, dummy variables, which are the x. So son i in occupation j. And I'll show you the occupations in a sec. So these x's can be 0 or 1. And, and the thetas are the coefficients for each of the eight occupations. So we have eight of those thetas, yeah? So we run that regression and we, we compute. So we get estimates of alpha, the, the constant, alpha, the, the eight thetas, delta, and lambda. This is an error term part of the regression. So now the second step, we construct this, uh, not this fictional variables, which is the income of the father f of son i. So this hats, well, this hat means that this is a prediction, and this hat, this is an estimate of the coefficient. So it's the estimated coefficient from the previous step, estimated coefficient here. We have the occupation of the parent. So that, that we do have, that's how we make the link. And here there's also a bit of uh, sausage making. Following Anderson Lake, we replace, we don't have the age of the father as well, so a lot of sausage making and law making. <laughs> so we, we follow Anderson Lake and we add age 40, like some type of average age. Okay, so. If you believe these results or not, in implicitly you are believing that there's some reason in doing this, and if you don't, you are totally entitled not to believe it. And it's life, second best, the life of second best. Okay. Um, 
And then the third stage, this is the stage in which we estimate the intergenerational in, uh, elasticity, and then from it, we estimate the correlation with the stellar deviation. So in this third stage, we run this regression I mentioned originally, where we model uh, the income of the son I as a function of the income of his father, of his father. You see? Plus, we still control for the age again. So the beta is, in essence, the elasticity. This, this coefficient, right? And then the correlation, we just multiply the beta by the ratio of the standard deviation, so we get between minus 1 and 1. Okay? So far, so good? Yeah? So what, what I will show you is, is, uh, is this IGC. You will see those uh, in, the, in the scattered plots. Okay? What else we did? Uh, how we measure the rigidities at the, bottom, uh, at the bottom and rigidities at the top? We constructed pairs in time mobility matrices with quartile partitions. Um, you're familiar with mobility matrices or so-called transition matrices? No? It's very simple. What you do essentially is, um, so in this case, with quartile partitions, we, we, we took the distribution of uh, parental incomes and partition in four bits, in four uh, uh, quartiles. So the, the bottom, 25%, uh, the second worst, 25%, the second best, 25%, and the top, 25%. Yeah? So like bins, like, like grids, cells. And then we did the same for the sons, and we computed, so you, you end up with a matrix, with a two-variable uh, two table. So we computed the probabilities, the conditional probabilities, for example, for a son of being in the bottom quartile, conditioned on the father having been in the bottom quartile. And we also computed from that matrix, we retrieved from that matrix, the probability that the son is in the top quartile, conditioned on the son being, on the father being in the top quartile. And you can do it for all the 16 options, right? So we report the, those two probabilities. Probability of sun being in position one, which is the bottom, given that condition, condition on the father being at the bottom, and then the same for the wealthy, four and four. So the fourth uh, quartile is the, the, the best in terms of wealth. Okay? For income inequality, we use the Gini coefficient of income for 1985. And then for inequality of opportunity, we use uh, four measures from this very nice uh, book by the World Bank, done by Latin American economists, led by Jose Molinas. Um, and they use uh, these four uh, indices of inequality opportunity among children. First, we, uh, I, and, uh, sorry, I take from them, this is a dissimilarity index, like the Duncan and Duncan index from the 1950s, for reading, reading results using the PISA reading test. I'll explain how they are, these are done in a sec. Uh, the, the same similarity index for mathematics, and then a so-called human opportunity index for access to sanitation, and human opportunity index for overcrowding. Okay, so how do we how do we measure these uh, inequality indices? Uh, how do they do it? They start with that variable pi, where i is child i, which is the predicted probability here of child i of attaining a desirable outcome like good sanitation. Uh, which is a function of circumstances beyond the child's control. Parental education, household income, yeah? And then we, we also uh, write the, the average value of that PI, of all the estimated PIs across the N children, and that's the average, which is P. And then we compare 
each PI against that average. And the idea is, if this background characteristic, this family background, parental education, household income, and so forth, did not matter in, in the access to sanitation, then all the PIs would be equal and equal to the average. So this D index would be zero. So the farther from zero we are, because here we have the absolute value, right, of the difference. The farther from zero we are, more inequality opportunity we get. The PIs depend on the background characteristics, which are beyond the kids' control, so it's unfair from a lot of ethical calls if you think about it, and therefore there's a situation of inequality opportunity. So I use the for two variables, but then there's another way of using the data, which is to construct the human opportunity index for this variable, or any variable, in which we interact average social attainment, which is the P, with inequality. This is based on this type of uh, metrics in economics uh, were popularized in the 70s, uh, people like Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winner, and so forth. The idea here is to say, well, let's evaluate the situation socially, let's reward societies which achieve a high average level of sanitation, but let's penalize them if that average is unevenly distributed. Does that make sense? That was minus one minus z. So we penalize the average with inequality. Yeah? It's very old. It's 40 years old or more. This, this, this way of constructing welfare indices. Okay? So data, we use this uh, data set, uh, social inequality fourth module of International Social Survey Program. Uh, but we only uh, take 38 countries uh, because uh, the other countries, not even the sun's income was available. So we are in the world of third best, fourth best, okay? Um, and uh, we also use this age restriction, 25 to 54, so we try to homogenize the sample by not having uh, uh, people who are too old and perhaps not even working, uh, and also people not too young and perhaps reporting very low incomes because they're still, they're just starting in their careers, uh, quote-unquote careers and so forth. What are the occupations? Well, age occupations, uh, these are basically the occupations that appear in the categories that are in the data set. Not necessarily a choice. So this will be agricultural fishery, legislators, separate wine and wine, senior official managers, clerks, professionals. So there's a whole array of occupations. Yeah? Um, and uh, for income inequality, I mean, most of the data is from 85, but because of data availability, sometimes we have to move around the date. So that also is a bit of second best. Okay, the rationale I explained, and the sort of the world income inequality database from the United Nations. Yeah, 2014. And the information is available for 36 countries, so our, our data reduces from 35 to 36. Yeah, inequality opportunity, uh, the data is from uh, the book by the World Bank, and we don't have the, 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 the variables for all countries, so when we look at inequality opportunity curves, uh, that's because we need to the measure, sorry, then the samples will, will shrink farther. So this is, that's what I was saying. This is tentative evidence. These are just invitations for further research because that's uh, as far as we could get with the existing data nowadays. So it's a limitation. All right. Ready for results? Yeah? Okay, boom. Let's start. So first, 36 countries, vertical axis, the correlations. So the higher the correlation, uh, the more uh, uh, immobility we have, closer to one, right? More, more, trans more intergenerational transmission. And on the horizontal axis, we have the genies, the uh, income inequality in the 80s. 
yeah and uh, well some first features here this 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 small uh, equation is is this is, is, is this line is the, the regression line across the plot and uh, the, the slope is positive but very low meaning that there is some positive correlation between inequality in the 80s and uh, uh, social mobility today social mobility I should say today but it's very very mild okay with this data um, and of course um, I, I read this somewhere which is very good it says um, you shouldn't trust uh, a regression line across a scatter plot when it's easier actually to find constellations. Mm -hmm. You know, like in other words, it's, you know, it's, it's the level of for each for each level, but the level of variation of variation is so high that there's not really a major relationship. Moreover, we have some oddities in the data. Uh, easier to blame the data to blame ourselves, and maybe it's our fault. Um, we get a few negative correlations, which is possible, but it's very old. We get Italy, Ukraine, and Philippines negative. So we we feel that perhaps there's something with that. I mean, we cannot believe that data from those countries, which uh, I don't know, or maybe we did something wrong. So in the next the next slide, we will remove those three negatives at the bottom. And then as we remove those negatives, the slope goes up as the regression line. So some association starts to emerge. Yeah, but now we have 33 countries. And notice what I told you, this is where it gets interesting. Countries like Poland and Hungary over here, Slovakia, Czech Republic, uh, well, Slovenia, well, Yugoslavia, but, um, uh, well, this, this four in particular, because uh, the other, well, there's Russia, Estonia, Latvia, from the former Soviet Union, right? But in general, these uh, former Varsovac countries, and in general, Eastern European countries, have low income inequality. But a few of them, so Hungary, Poland, uh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, have <coughs> relatively, relatively high levels of uh, immobility, especially Hungary and Poland. So um, what we did was, what happens if we remove these countries and there's some assumption that, well, in the 1980s, they were in their last years of, of a command economy, and perhaps that affects the, the different type of relationship, what happens if we focus on quote-unquote more market-oriented economies, quote-unquote? Yeah? So then we get 27 countries, and then, boom, all of a sudden, the slope goes up a lot. And it becomes statistically significant, or whatever. More, more than that, what matters is that it becomes more, what I call, practically significant. Now you see this correlation, right? Now it starts to resemble the Great Gatsby curve. Yeah? So interestingly, you can see uh, a lot of developing countries on, on the top right. High inequality, like Argentina, South Africa, Chile, Venezuela, Turkey. High income inequality in the 80s with high immobility. Whereas on the side of, uh, on the, uh, the sunnier part of the world, Norway, Finland, the usual suspects, right? Austria, well, South Korea, Japan, very, very high mobility. But in Sweden and Denmark, oh, we, we, we made a mistake. We forgot to remove Latvia and Estonia, which were part of the Soviet Union. So, but it wouldn't if they are so close to the line that they wouldn't change the line, really. So it's still fine. So we get, you know, the the Western world type of bits on the left, and and with many countries 
towards the bottom. So we are replicating what we see also in other, in other uh, studies, although not necessarily with the same countries in the same rankings, because the methodology is different, right? Now, show you, um, this, are, this, this, is, this is fact that we haven't seen yet in other places, uh, more new. Rigid is at the bottom, so the probabilities that the sun is in the, in the poorest quartile, income quartile, given that the father was in the poorest quartile, so here we see, interestingly, for example, uh, some countries like Hungary, Spain, Estonia, Philippines, Norway, South Korea, with relatively low probability that the sun will remain poor as the father, whereas at the bottom, Portugal, Cyprus, Poland, Israel, Venezuela, high probability of replicating the bottom. Yeah. Um, of course, this alone perhaps is interesting, but it's, I think it's more interesting when it's interacted to attempt an interpretation with the previous data that I showed, which is the typology that I will try to mention in a minute. But first, this uh, at the top. So this is the probability of being a wealthy son if your dad was wealthy. Um, and now notice this interesting thing. So for example, Portugal. This is, this is remarkable. Uh, look at Hungary and Portugal. This is what I was telling you, that how the typology and all these things emerge. Portugal has a very high probability compared to the other countries of reproducing the poor, whereas Hungary has a low probability of that, right? And then Portugal has a very low probability, sorry, not very low, compared to other countries, low probability of reproducing the wealthy, whereas Hungary has a high probability of reproducing the wealthy. So that already says, tells us something about the differences among societies that perhaps is interesting, right? This is what I will, again, this is very tentative preliminary evidence, but it attempts to tease out questions and to prompt people to, to go farther. Farther, like beyond the Great Gatsby curve, which is interesting, but there's more to that. So here is where we attempt a first uh, typology of rigidities. So we find three groups of countries, but maybe we're missing other, other ways of classification, of course. The first, countries where the where the intergenerational correlation of incomes is roughly equally driven by either both high top and bottom rigidities or both low top and bottom rigidities. Examples. South Africa, very low uh, mobility, very low mobility, and in South Africa both the probability of reproducing poor states and reproducing wealthy states both are high and very similar. Therefore, the low mobility of service South Africa is roughly equally driven by both top and bottom. South Korea the same, but South Korea has very high mobility. And the probability of reproducing poverty and the probability of reproducing wealth is equally low, equally in quotes. You see how that typology works? But then we have countries that are lopsided, right? So for example, the cases where the correlation seems to be more influenced by the bottom rigidity. So uh, for example, like, like how? So, for example, the case of Latvia. Latvia has high mobility, right? High mobility, low probability of reproducing poverty, but high probability of reproducing wealth. Therefore, it must be the case that it's the low probability of reproducing poverty that is driving the overall high mobility. It, is, it, it can be a bit of a, uh, like a, like a tongue twister or something. You have to think through it carefully, but when you look at it, it may, makes sense. Whereas Portugal, on the other hand, has 
Latvians, we said, have high mobility. Portugal has low mobility, right? It has low mobility, and it has a high probability of reproducing poverty, and a low probability of reproducing wealth. Therefore, that high probability of reproducing poverty must be the driver behind the overall low mobility. You see how it works? How you play it out? And then finally, the final category are countries in which as opposed to the second group, now the third group, the top rigidity, the probability of reproducing wealth is the, is the main player. Right? So that's a big idea. So uh, again, we have, for example, Austria has uh, uh, low mobility, right? Has low mobility, low probability of reproducing wealth, and high probability of reproducing poverty. Therefore, it must be that low probability of reproducing wealth that is more important. Okay. Of course, this is a bit. This, this is very preliminary, as I said, and it's 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 uh, it's tempted, tempting because we are only looking at two probabilities of the matrix out of sixteen. But already, you know, it allows you to to start uh, detecting hypotheses, conjectures, right, to, for further inquiry. And finally, here we have the new great Duffy curve in which we are going beyond just income versus social mobility comparisons, and we are now doing social mobility comparisons versus inequality opportunity. Uh, okay? So on the horizontal axis, sorry that uh, uh, the, the, the slide got cut, here we have the intergenerational correlations. So the further on the right, it means lower mobility, higher correlation of income. And then on the vertical axis, we have the dissimilarity index for reading among kids. So the higher the value, it means more inequality. And we get a very interesting parabolic function with a positive slope over here. And it's essentially driven by, by the outlier Italy. The moment you remove this, this becomes just a line like this. A very, very high um, a slope, you see? In other words, countries with contemporary low, more, uh, lower mobility are countries that also seem to be the ones with higher inequality opportunity among kids as measured by reading. But look, when we go to maths, we get the same. Again, Italy generating the curve, but remove Italy, toss it out, and we get a very clear positive slope. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, now we have, we replace the vertical axis with a human opportunity index. So a high value of the human opportunity index is good. It means that you have a, a good combination of high average attainment with low uh, dissimilarity, with low inequality. This is for sanitation. And look what we get. It's just a small sample, but it's, again, suggestive. The countries with lower mobility are also countries with lower human opportunity index of kids. And then when we move to overcrowding, we get similar results with negative slopes. Mm -hmm. These are the equations of the slope, right? And we fitted the equation with, with the data. Yeah? So something seems to be going on there. And, and that's basically, that's, that's basically uh, the, the, the paper, the, the, the chapter, the book chapter. Um, we essentially corroborated the findings of Anders and Lay, but the relationship depends a lot of whether we include the Varsal factor or not, the relationship between income inequality and mobility. So the, the type of country 
that these societies were in the 1980s affects the correlation, which makes sense because uh, former socialist countries were a different kind of beast, right? We also provided a typology with the rigidities, which we think is something uh, novel, at least uh, intent and provoking. And we also found great that three type of curves with inequality opportunity measures, which is also things also interesting to look at. And as I mentioned, we, we did this link between past income inequality, contemporary social mobility, and income, sorry, and inequality opportunity of kids, which, which, can, uh, uh, which, which is an anticipation of the future. So trying to link three, three moments. Okay, um, well, of course, compared to other literature, I mean, Miles Korak uh, found uh, very similar uh, great Gatsby type of curves, but his estimates of correlations are a bit different uh, than ours because he uses different methods, different data and different methods. So that reminds us that data methodological choices in cross-country comparisons matter. They matter. But the good thing, though, is that despite our different methods, we get similar overall trends. Even if the actual country ranks are not exactly the same, we get similar overall trends. And from the point of view of knowledge, that's reassuring, I don't know what to call it, like the fact that we're getting similar stuff, that it's not so drastically different. And as I mentioned to you, obviously we agree we should do other assessments with alternative kinship relationships, alternative measures of, of different concepts of inequality and mobility, because the results may also depend on the choice of indicator, on the choice of kinship relationship. And, and, and so it's worth checking whether things are similar or not and so forth. Okay, and of course uh, the pervasiveness of these trends, the, the fact that we, we seem to be getting similar results to other literature, warrant inquiry into the factors behind them. And well, I guess it's not so uh, controversial to say that good policy prescriptions may require that understanding. If, if we think that uh, combinations of high inequality, low mobility, high inequality opportunity are bad from an ethical point of view, it, at least it will help to know why that's gone, why, why what's behind that, right? So anyway, that's it. I hope you like it. Any questions? Or more? So thank you so much, Gaston, for a very interesting talk. Um, we have 10 minutes for questions. So um, I'd like to begin with a quick question. Um, you mentioned that um, this preliminary work might generate new hypotheses, and I was wondering like, what some initial hypotheses might be concerning differences between countries um, where um, it seems like inequality is more likely to be transmitted um, by reproducing the wealthy rather than the poor and vice versa. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, um, oh, well, what different hypotheses? You're asking me basically what would I do if I could carry on with this type of work yeah. myself? Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, uh, well, as, 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 as you mentioned, um, um, perhaps one hypothesis uh, could be related to, uh, to welfare states and safety nets, assuming that uh, societies uh, with better safety nets and welfare states or combinations thereof uh, are probably societies where rigidities at the bottom are lower. Uh, whereas perhaps <coughs> societies where um, there is well actually not necessarily, I was thinking about public versus private sector employment, but societies where um, 
where social capital and networks for employment prospects are more important, and well, how to measure that, but imagine you could, I would imagine they might help explain rigidities at the top. Also, the penetration of higher education, the, the skewness of the economy toward the uh, sectors that require a lot of education may also explain uh, the drivers behind rigidities at the top. And the two sets, the two broad sets of things explaining the bottom and the top reproductions, then would lead to what knowing what's behind them. And then between the two, with more sophisticated techniques, we could know the actual quantitative importance toward the intergenerational correlation. Uh, but that, so, those, so there are two links there. There's a quantitative link there, and then there's a more behavioral uh, explanatory link previously. Uh, but obviously, both links would require much more uh, data of all sorts and uh, more statistical techniques and things like that. So kind of a wish list, and then I fell off my bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've thrown us a lot of tongue twisters. Uh, Sorry. Uh, question, do you think rigidities are automatically bad? Ah, that's a very, very good point. Um, yeah, well, that's sort of the realm of ethics, isn't it? Um, the, reason, the reason I ask, if I can give some background, is that we, we, you know, we have a hypothesis which we'd like to test ourselves that actually social mobility might have negative outcomes mm -hmm. in terms of health and well-being. So rigidity in this case might be that you're not actually you know, creating new stresses, if you will. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. Uh, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean... I mean, I, I was trained as an economist, and, and one of our uh, things that we were trained for was always to respond, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 I totally, I mean, I, I see where, where, where your point is coming, and of course I take it. Um, perhaps when, when low rigidity or where high mobility means higher and high uncertainty, high risk, an environment or this, downward mobility, for example, and so forth, then, then surely that could be a problem. So from that point of view, from the point of view of vulnerability and risk and, and risk aversion, natural risk aversion, people's risk aversion, and downward aversion, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that could, uh, I mean, there are ways to measure that, even with mobility matrices, by looking, for example, at the probability of being lower, having lower outcomes than your father, um, which, is, which is downward mobility story. Um, there are also uh, the, the, one can also estimate uh, the the the, uh, the whole distribution of of, of uh, for example the conditional distribution of your incomes given that your father had a certain income and look how diverse the distribution is uh, as a measure also of uncertainty uh, but no but from an ethical point of view I agree that yes one would have to unpack and see what's behind the rigidities and it's not necessarily good or bad, it depends on the situation. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah. Agree. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your time. I'm, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but I want to talk about women. And yeah. specifically that, you know, when you're looking at income from father to son, don't you think that even in the 80s, among many countries that you've looked at, that the occupation, formal or informal or none, of the women in the household, if any, would really have a lot of bearing on the socioeconomic status of of the child, you know, at a young age, and that is a really important, therefore, for like looking at social mobility of the child. I mean, it, it seems like a pretty big oversight, doesn't it, to like not even incorporate like the role of women at all in socioeconomic status? 
Well, I mean, uh, on one hand, I agree. I mean, uh, I think that's why we mentioned the importance of looking at alternative kinship relationships. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are several ways in which you can tackle that. Uh, and I think they're all potentially very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, one is, uh, and there's actually one that I don't think has been done much. But the first one that, that there, there is some, uh, Gary Solomon from the US has actually done this work as well a lot, is to look at uh, the impact of the correlation between the mother and the daughter and the mother and the son. And how the, there's a correlation there. But another one that I, I, I'm just thinking just right this second as we speak is how, for example, for example, the father-son correlation is mediated by the mother characteristic. I don't, that, that hasn't been done much, as, as far as I know. Like, quote-unquote, controlling for that. Well, right? Is that even available to you in, in these servidities in communities, or is it just... Uh, I'll have to check, I'll have to check. I mean, I... Yeah, I, I'll have to check the data. I mean, mo most of the number crunching for the correlations was done by Thomas. I mean, I, I, then I... I, uh, I, I did some of the number crunching, too, as well. Egalitarian <laughs> No weeping, no. But, but he, the correlation themselves, he, uh, he did most of the data gathering and identifying. Uh, so um, I'll have to get in touch with him sure. to see that. But, but yeah, I absolutely agree, though. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We have time for a one minute question and answer. Does anyone have a very, very brief question? Or shall we? Yeah, I have a small one. Yeah. Other than excluding data sets from your information, did you make any further adjustments for correlation between the covariates? Ah, um, no. We, I mean, we followed Andres and Leder, and it's a very simple model. I mean, that's. I mean, I think that's what you're referring to, I guess. But if not, please let me know. Um, where is this? Here. Well, these three. It's basically occupations and age, but obviously you could think about uh, a, broad, a richer set of variables, absolutely. Um, and in this type of question, this is where I was thinking, for example, introducing mothers, variables, and so forth. But we actually went for a very, uh, very simple model. But, but it's, it's a big point, but it's a good point, because these coefficients may be affected by omitted variables or not. So, uh, but we're following the literature, so uh, again, tomatoes, but for everybody. Well, thank you so much.